Robin Hood steals money from my pocket, forcing me to hurt the public. And they love him for it? Yes. That's it. Cancel the kitchen scraps for lepers and orphans. No more merciful beheadings. And call off Christmas. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast. I'm Rick. I'm Julia. And today we are watching 1991's Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, directed by Kevin Reynolds, starring Kevin Costner, and written by Pete Densham and John Watson. I am so excited to watch this movie. We have mentioned it so many times in the past this season because this was the movie that the two Kevins worked on before doing Waterworld. There was behind-the-stuff things happening in this movie that were exacerbated in the next one. And uh, this is also a movie that I have a long-standing history with. I do as well. I think I was a little young to see it in the theaters. I would have been Mm 10-ish. So I certainly didn't see it in the theaters. But this would have been a movie that we rented from Blockbuster on Friday night and had over the weekend. So I guarantee that's how I saw this movie. I have seen this movie many, many times, and I recollect my understanding of the plot line growing through time. Mm-hmm. So I am very interested to see my understanding of the plot this time, watching it as a full-fledged adult. Okay. My history with this movie begins when my grandmother, on my mother's side of the family, bought it on VHS, and when... My mother would take my brother and I over to visit Grammy. Uh, The two adults in this situation would want to visit and talk and whatnot. And uh, when it wasn't summertime and the condo association pool wasn't open so that they could let me swim, I needed something to do. So one of the movies that they would let me watch was Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Because... What child wouldn't like a Robin Hood story? It's one of those classic adventure films. So I watched this a lot when I was a kid. I never knew that. Hmm. A child watching this movie. Now, I was a child watching this movie as well. Not as young as you, probably, but still a child. I had no earthly idea what was happening. And there were parts of the movie that I did not like because I had no idea what was happening. It just doesn't seem like a movie for a small child. Well, that's where you're wrong. It Uh, can get really dark. First of all. Like, there is a man burned alive, hanging, mm -hmm. that we just see. And someone who has had their eyes gouged out. Again, we just see. And and we see a man getting his hands chopped off. Mm -hmm. We see so much death in this movie. It is a dark movie. Despite all of that. There is so much action in this film. You begin with the breakout. That initial action scene kicks us off. And you can really ignore all of the terrible things that happen to people and all of the gruesome details by the fact that you've got all of this cool stuff happening. Like the Little John fight in the river where they start going down the rapids and things like that. That is such a good scene. When they have to break into the castle at the end. 
various examples of guerrilla warfare that happen throughout the story. It's so classic. It's all action-based stuff that I cared more about as a kid than anything going on with the fact that he was a crusader right? trying it's to take so, back the Holy Land. Or, this movie is so political. And there was all of this stuff about the Sheriff of Nottingham taking away the land from Robin. I didn't care about all that. All I know is that a bunch of dudes who looked like the KKK showed up and messed up his home, so he had to kill them all. <laughs> I do have to admit that the movie quote in my head that I quote most often ever in my entire life is to the trees. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Anytime I need to leave a place, especially if I feel the need to leave quickly, but anytime I leave a place in my head, I say to the trees. <laughs> it just applies to anytime you need to move locations. Right. To the trees. This movie is also my introduction to Kevin Costner as an actor. I was not aware or paying attention to him at all before this. Mostly because I was a child, but also when it came to recognizing names of actors in things. Like when I saw Waterworld for the first time, it was in the context of, oh, hey, that's Robin Hood. Mm. This was most likely my introduction to Kevin Costner. I think of his 90s high, I believe this was the first movie of that span of his career. So I do believe this was my intro to him. This was also my intro to Morgan Freeman. Mm-hmm. This might have been my intro to Alan Rickman as well. When you really start paying attention to this movie, it is packed. Oh, it's absolutely stacked. So many good people are in this movie. I can't wait to watch it. I'm kind of excited. I'm a bit nervous because both of us are so familiar with this movie that we won't have a lot to talk about other than gushing over how much we like this movie. Mm. As opposed to when we watch a movie that we have never seen before, there is more picking it apart that we do. I'm just hoping that I have enough to talk about. Yeah. Although you and I, we don't really ever have that problem. No, not really. Listeners, you know the deal. I'm going to play the trailer for you. And when we come back, we will have rewatched this movie for, I don't know, the umpteenth time. <laughs> A time of war. A time of homecoming. A time of tyrants. A time when the only way to uphold justice was to break the law. He gave the people the courage to fight. Freedom became a legend. 
Morgan Freeman, Christian Slater, Alan Rickman, and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And we're back. Julie, you said you had feelings. There's stuff you wanted to talk about. Oh my gosh, I've been watching a completely different movie all these years. <laughs> the movie that we just watched, I have never seen before. All right, so here's the thing. I forgot, despite looking at the IMDb page in the intro to this episode, that Robin Hood Prince of Thieves is two hours and 23 minutes long. This is a long-ass movie. I promise you I have never seen the two and a half hour version of this movie. I am willing to bet that you have only ever seen a two hour TV cut yes, of this film. Absolutely. There were several scenes that I had never seen before and entire storylines that I didn't know existed. I am flabbergasted by the things I did not know about this movie. Biggest things that I did not know about this movie. I did not know how much the Sheriff of Nottingham practiced his alternate religion. His dark magic. Yes. Witchcraft. I recognized that he kept a crone in the basement. Well, that's where you keep crones. Right. I mean, yeah. that's where she belongs, right? Yeah. I mean, you keep crazy. I kind of assumed she came with the castle. Yeah. You keep crazy wives in the attic and you keep crones in the basement. Right. But I didn't realize their particular relationship in more than one sense. Yeah. In a couple of senses. So to see the extra scenes of him actually practicing his religion and also noticing slash seeing the scene in the end when he drags Marion up to his private chapel and lo and behold, his private chapel has his pagan altar over his Christian altar. I don't know if that was cut from the version I seen or if I just never noticed it before. But that's why everyone was so shocked when they walked in that room. Because it was set up for a, an entirely different religion. <laughs> so seeing more scenes of them, of the Sheriff of Nottingham and others in their white robe get-ups. Yeah. Make the opening scene with the... With Dad Papaloxy. Brian Blessed. Yes, Brian Blessed. Lord Loxini. Yeah. Where they're wearing all those robes. I always wondered what the deal was with those robes. Yep. Because they are very weird. And he's wearing a mask and it's it's all very strange. It's because they're the ones who orchestrated the setup with Lord Loxley that he was accused of witchcraft and mm -hmm. condemned and burned. Including those scenes also ended up including more scenes of Alan Rickman being crazy. It really emphasized that the Sheriff of Nottingham is unhinged. Yep. There is a line that Alan Rickman says in this movie. He's up close talking oh, to, yeah, to, uh, the little girl. to the little girl when he brings in the children hostages. And he's like, I had a terrible childhood. I'll tell you about it one time. It's amazing I grew up sane. Yeah. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> No, you didn't. No, you didn't. But he's much more flamboyant and oh just loud and more gestury and more walking around as he's talking. Mm. He's even more. And that really does help explain his character. I feel like Kevin Reynolds had a very soft hand when it came to Alan Rickman and Kevin Costner. Those two felt like they were brought to set and put in costume and probably given scripts 
Right. But also maybe just general descriptions of what's supposed to happen in the scene, and then they were just let loose. Absolutely feel that way with Alan Rickman. There's a moment that I actually know of from previous viewings, it wasn't fresh here, where he walks into the crone's lair, he picks up a knife, and out of frustration, he like mini stabs a plate of meat. Yep. Which turns out that meat is like offerings to the only altar, turns out. Um, but yeah, that absolutely feels like Alan Rickman being told, okay, you need to walk into the room, you are frustrated by the things that have recently happened, and this is the person who you actually talk to. So, <laughs> action. Absolutely feels like Alan Rickman found a way to, how would this man express frustration? He's violent, he's in charge of any room that he's in, so he gets to do whatever he wants, so here's what he would do. Mm -hmm. Which was an excellent characterization. Okay, so going along those same lines of knowing more about the Sheriff Nottingham's extracurricular activities, we get a whole extra scene that was cut out of whatever version I saw, probably the TV version, where he discovers that Mortiana has been spying on him, which we knew, again, that was cut out of the TV version, mm -hmm. where they like focus in on a little hole in the wall and you can see her eyeball. He discovers that he gets really mad, which I was a little baffled about why because she could spy on him, that meant she was a fake? Yeah, I was, because I, he was operating under the belief that she had this clairvoyance and that every time she gave him advice that it was some sort of mystic thing. Like, it, he didn't see it as her manipulating him. He saw it as her reading into divine powers and then he was making a decision based on mystic stuff. It wasn't her manipulating him. But this whole spying thing revealed to him that she was just listening in on what was happening. So those ideas that she was feeding him weren't mystical or or coming out of the ether or anything. It was just her manipulation. And him being the kind of guy that he is, of course he would take such umbrage with being manipulated. Yeah. Side note, that she had to do that because as a woman, she could never be a counsel to him. Mm -hmm. She had to do it through witchcraft. Yeah. Because she's a woman. Anyways, so they're arguing. And she kind of blurts out that she is his mother. Yeah. Never knew that before. My jaw hit the floor. I never knew that before. So she is his mother. And to compensate for her own displacement from society, because she doesn't look like everybody else, she swapped her baby with the local ruler's baby. Mm -hmm. And then... Twist of fate, they died anyways. Yeah. But at least her son grew up with a title. So you have IMDb up in front of you, right? I do. All right, scroll down to the cast and look at Geraldine McEwen's IMDb page. Now, seeing her picture, she looks familiar. So she was born in 1932, died in 2015, only seven years ago. She was 82 when she passed. But the picture that they have on her IMDb page. She is lovely. She is. She did a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows, a few voices here and there, but she was very busy over the course of her career. It stretched all the way from 1953 <laughs> all the way up. She voice work on Wallace and Gromit. Yeah, 1953 to 2011. She was in the industry doing voice work or in front of the camera work for a 
long time. Wow. She's got so much work. Yeah. That's amazing. Like a few years shy of 60 years. Oh, that is amazing. So she spills the beans and pretty much reveals it. It's all about her. Mm -hmm. It's not that she wanted a better life for her son than she could provide. It was, if I can make something of him, it would be my blood that accomplished this. Yeah, her blood ultimately taking over the throne. Yes. Like she's raging against the machine hard. (laughs) Absolutely. So she has been steering him to become the king of England. I would, I I need to go back and watch this movie again because (laughs) I watched most of the movie not realizing that she had not a mystical hand in everything, but a pragmatic and strategizing hand in everything. Mm -hmm. I need to go back and rewatch it. Knowing now. Yeah. Because again, I've just watched a completely different movie. Adding in those scenes and that storyline does make something in the very end scene make more sense. So the sheriff has taken the Lady Marion up to his private chapel and is starting the wedding. Mm -hmm. And Mother Crone starts getting in the way and being all like mother of the groom about it. He bats her off and he says something to the effect of back off you old crone for once in my life. I want something that is pure. Yeah. Something untainted by her influence. Right. And I'm like, that kind of came out of nowhere. The last time we saw them together in the cut, I watched things were fine. She was doing her normal. Hey, you need to do this and do that. And he was like, okie dokie. Will do. So now that we know that, he discovered her secret and is mad at her. Now that makes sense. And he pushed her off and was like, no, I don't want your help. I want to do this on my own, you know, forcefully wed and rape a woman. Right. Yeah. It's interesting to see that scene and realize that there is a rape happening mid marriage. Yep. He is taking off his clothing. He is taking her clothing off and the Bishop is just standing there conducting the ceremony. Yep. This viewing, he angers me more than he ever had before in any previous viewing. Mm -hmm. Because I'm an adult now, and I live in the world that we live in, where bodily autonomy is a big thing in our world right now. And I always realized that this was rape. Even as a kid, I was like, no, that shouldn't be happening. He does not have her permission. She is resisting. No matter what age I was, it didn't matter to me that they were married, quote unquote, because they weren't married. If I learned anything from Princess Bride, that if you don't say I do, then you're not married. (laughs) If you do not both consent, independently consent to that marriage ceremony, you're not married. She did not say I do. If you didn't say it, you didn't do it. So anyways, but as a kid watching this, I never thought that this was okay. I always was like, married or not married, this is not okay. Yeah. I can at least appreciate that about myself, my upbringing, my education from my parents, my education from, you know, church and school, that this scene was never okay. Was there anything on this viewing that hit different for you? I was not necessarily surprised by its presence, but I was surprised by the extent of Michael McShane as Friar Tuck being so vehemently opposed to everything that Morgan Freeman as Azim stood for. I know that they had that one scene sitting around the fire 
where Robin Hood was like, hey, don't be racist to my black friend. And everyone's like, okay, we won't be racist to your black friend. And it's like, hooray, Robin Hood solves racism. And then in comes Friar Tuck. And he is just like, oh, Muslims are the worst people ever. And it takes up until the scene where Fanny is having to deliver that baby and Azim is the one to save her and the baby to turn around. But he's just so vicious. And I just never noticed that before. That shocked me because the scene where Azim is sitting kind of off to the side, he has made himself a space that has symbology that is significant to him in it. And he is sitting there while other people are drinking and partying that he doesn't partake in. And this little girl walks up and says, did God paint you? So they have this little conversation about God and people being different. Mm -hmm. And it's a lovely little conversation. And then it's over and nothing happens. Well, that was the version I grew up with, but that's not your version. That's not this version. In this version, Friar Tuck flips out. He runs over so hard that he like slides half the way there and scoops this girl up and just berates Azim for pretending to know anything about God. And Azim is like practical about it. He's like, well, my God is Abrahamic and your God is Abrahamic. So, you know, and Friar Tuck is just having none of it. Yeah. I had not seen that part. It's like, um, I knew it was there like under the surface, but it's just, when I see Michael McShane, I think of Professor Keenbean from the Richie Rich movie in 1994. <laughs> um, because that was another one of those movies that I watched a lot as a kid. And so there's always this juxtaposition between eccentric Professor Keenbean, who's just making weird inventions in the Richie Rich mansion laboratories, and Friar Tuck, who is just so opposed to everything that Azim stands for religiously. And it really hammers home, like, how much of a fervor the church was able to whip people into in order to get them to go on these crusades. Absolutely. I find it really interesting, the juxtaposition between pre-Friar Tuck and post-Friar Tuck's appearance. That scene around the fire, their very first night, when they weren't going to offer the bottle to Azim, and Robin Hood says are you so rude as to not offer my friend drink? Mm-hmm. And they're like, no. So they do, and they include him. And they're like, okay, cool. Because it was about the color of his skin. Yeah. Like, ooh, he looks different than us, and I don't know what to do with that, so I'm just going to pretend he doesn't exist. And Robin was like, mm, no. So it was about the color of his skin. Oh, speaking of but- color of skin, there's also Duncan, who was like shocked that Azim oh, was, was a I know, moral. okay. Does he not sound black? I don't I mean, think Duncan has ever heard but you know what? someone from that region But of the you world. know what? There's that YouTuber who does the animal stuff who sounds like Morgan Freeman. He's white. Yeah. And he sounds exactly like Morgan Freeman. Yeah. Z Frank. He's yeah, fun. He is fun. But Friar Tuck's issue with Azim is not about the color of his skin. Nope. I don't think he cares at all about the color of his skin. He cares about which god he worships. And in this context, in this time in the world, that is just such a bigger problem than the color of their skin is the God that they worship. And I don't know how to compare that to nowadays, because nowadays it is very much about the color of people's skin, but it's also about the God they worship. So I don't know nowadays which one is stronger, but in the context of the movie, 
no one really seems to care about the color of his skin too much, but hugely about his god. I appreciate that we don't run in the circle of individuals who know what the hierarchy of discrimination is supposed to be. (laughs) It's amazing how many different ways Morgan Freeman can be prejudiced against by people in this movie. (laughs) Yes. If they if they don't choose one thing, they go with another. Reminds me of a tip I heard, I think from a movie somewhere, is when you want to compliment a woman, and this goes to anybody, I suppose, don't compliment her on something that she was born with. Compliment her on something that she made a choice on. Yeah. Compliment her shoes, not how pretty her eyes are, because she chose her shoes. When you're complimenting her shoes, you are actually complimenting her choice that she made, not what she was innately born with. Mm-hmm. So I guess it, flipping that around in a really dark and nasty way, if you're going to be mad at Azim, be mad at the thing that he chose. He chooses to worship that god. He did not choose to be black. So if you're going to insult him, insult the thing he chose. I mean, I guess. the ideal situation don't is don't. Right. Or you could compliment him on the thing that he chose. Azim, I don't agree with your religion, but I appreciate your devotion to it. Your devotion to it is inspiring. <laughs> Unless you're currently being attacked by the Sheriff of Nottingham's men. Um, huh. Yeah, because Robin was not appreciative of no. Azim taking time to pray, and then a fight breaking out during the prayer time. I know very little about Muslim prayer time. I know that it's five times a day. I know that you face Mecca. If you don't know where Mecca is, face East. But if you don't know where East is, what do you do then? Obviously, praying is better than not praying at all. But Azim was starting to look quite stressed. Yeah. Not in a panic. Because there's no sun in this country. (laughs) It's constantly overcast in England. What terrible place was he brought to? Yeah. I don't know the rules beyond if you can't face Mecca, face East. But I don't know what happens after that. Like, if you don't know where East is. I don't know the next step. He seemed very worried. Yeah. I commented as the movie was starting that I think besides the Aladdin movie, this was my first exposure to people of a Muslim culture. And you responded with something along the lines of, oh, that's that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is not a flattering portrayal of Muslims. Azim does it credit. He is an excellent portrayal. Yeah. He is devout and not judgy. He doesn't try and preach his faith to other people. Yeah. He's just quietly devout and just confidently devout. Shocker. He doesn't go to someone else's country <laughs> and take their city in the name of converting them to his religion. Wow. What a concept. That's Imagine, crazy. That'd be, that's, oh, man. I wish everybody would do that. Right. Not invade other people's countries. Yeah. So what I meant by that was the opening scene where we meet Robin and Peter and Azim and they're in this prison and the guard executioner person, warden thing person, does a little bit of exposition handling where we learn that Peter and Robin are in there because someone tried to steal bread from them and that person said that Peter tried to steal the bread from him. Mm. So instead of, I don't know, going to court and deciding evidence and judgment, 
deciding who owned the bread and who stole the bread and who should be punished for stealing the bread. They just scooped everybody up. Yep. And was just going to cut off all the hands of everybody. Yeah. Even Robin, who didn't really seem to be like, it's only one piece of bread. Why are two people being punished for it? I don't know. But this cruel treatment of these prisoners in a Muslim city is just very unflattering. And the way, oh, the portrayal, the visuals that we get in there and the sound effects and the chopping up of hands. It's just very dark and cruel and not flattering to their (laughs) culture at all. I also commented that it did not ever occur to me that the people in Aladdin were Muslim. Didn't occur to me to think of them as a religion at all. Mm -hmm. But once you said that, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, there's one part in Aladdin where the sultan says verbatim, praise Allah. Oh, that's true. I'm sorry. Saying that, it made me think of Will Scarlet and his exclamation after the catapult scene. Oh. (laughs) So by this point in the movie, I'm flabbergasted. Like every time we switch scenes, I'm like, is this going to be a new scene? What am I going to see next? I do not know. So I was tickled that of all the scenes they cut for the TV version, they left that one in. Yeah. Even though it was not needed at all. It was just funny. And it's funny because you watch it. And the one F word that you are allowed to use in a PG-13 movie is spoken by Christian Slater as Will Scarlet after the catapult. He says, oh, F me, they made it over or something like that. And if you know that's what he says, then you can pick it out. But if you don't know that's what he's saying, then he doesn't pronounce it clear enough that I think anyone would necessarily pick it out if they weren't looking for it. It's just so out of context. It is very strange. (laughs) It is very weird. I mean, it matches the humor of this movie. Yeah. This movie is funny. It is. Robin, especially, is constantly pulling little jokes. Kevin Costner does a very good job in this movie of turning Robin of Loxley from a strictly heroic and swashbuckling character like the Errol Flynn version into a rogue. He is a trickster. He is a strategist. And he is a joker. And I really appreciated that characterization because he is referenced a couple of times as a spoiled little rich boy type Mm -hmm. by a couple of different characters. And you really do get that sense that he walks through the world commanding whatever space he's in because that's how he grew up Mm -hmm. in command of, you know, his household of servants. And the only person that he was subject to was his father. So he's very adept and comfortable at poking fun at the people around him. And he doesn't necessarily recognize that other people's authority, whether it be legitimate or a facade, is worthy of any respect. Mm -hmm. He throws that respect right out the window. I mean, the moment that he meets Little John, Little John is the leader of this merry band of men. And the very first thing that Robin does is poke fun at him for it. This is a man who is the leader of his community. He should be shown a certain amount of respect. But Robin, being a spoiled little rich boy, doesn't show him any respect at all. And that's very characteristic of him. It's also characteristic of other versions of Robin that we've seen. I grew up, one of my favorite Disney movies is Robin Hood. Yep, the fox. The fox version of Robin Hood. And he is not as teasing or flippant as Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, but he is very 
lighthearted. Mm. I don't think I would call him jolly, but calling him Robin Hood and his merry band of men is more apt for the Disney version because they dance and sing and are just generally having a good time. Yeah. And then, of course, after this, there was Robin Hood Men in Tights, which is just a whole different level of funny and wit and well, ironic. Robin and... Hood Men in Tights was clowning on this version of Robin Hood yes. the whole time. Yes, very much so. I enjoyed the characterization of Robin Hood and how he related to the people around him mm-hmm. very much in this movie. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed how he played off of other people right from the beginning when he meets Guy of Gisborne and uh-huh. he's like, what creature could be so fierce and then it takes six men to track him down? And then he looks up and he's like, oh, a mere child. And so from the moment that he meets Guy of Gisborne, he's just poking and needling mm-hmm. and laughing at him. And it's so great. And it's so the cause of all his problems. I loved so much that in that first altercation with the sheriff's men, he hits, punches, not sure, don't remember how it happens, but one of the guards and his nose gets broken by his nose piece getting bent. We see that same guy, same actor, same helmet with the bent nose four or five times throughout the movie. That is one detail that I never picked up on. In I had never times picked up on it either before and i loved it like of course they wouldn't give him a new helmet that's just wasteful yeah but they also didn't fix it because all of the blacksmiths were holed up in the castle making swords and armor Mm -hmm. that's why they didn't bother fixing it (laughs) there's a lot to be said for this movie one of the things that really stood out guy of gisborne wise is how they chose to shoot him oh yeah with the camera because you pointed this out to me, and I couldn't unsee it after that. But every time they do a close-up of Michael Wincott as Guy of Gisborne, it seems like they're using some sort of fisheye lens to just make him seem weird. Yes, they did. I'm not sure what it made me feel about Guy of Gisborne, but it did alter my perception of him. Coming in close to him, he always seemed like sweaty mm-hmm. and weak, I guess. Which is, I think, what we were supposed to feel. The sheriff has surrounded himself with people, but they're not the best people. Like, he's got Guy of Gisborne who can't manage this one guy. One guy he can't manage to capture. Mm -hmm. And then he's got a crone that turns out to be spying on him and is his mother. And then... He's got a bunch of quote-unquote allies. Yeah, he's got the barons. Conspiracy that really... All they want is money. Right, that he can't afford to pay. So he's got this circle of people, and they're all just mediocre, which is fitting because he himself is just a mediocre person. He can't manage to properly lead his county. He even says when he's meeting with the barons and he can't afford to pay them, he makes a comment about, if I can't even control my own county, how am I supposed to control the country? Like, I don't think you're supposed to say that to your allies. I think he was saying it sarcastically. Like, oh, you guys think this? Well, I'm going to prove you wrong. Right. Except like, that it was true. He said He's <laughs> putting words in their mouth, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but they weren't false. They weren't false words. Those barons had a very good point. When we started getting into the movie, I wanted to know where I had seen Guy of Gisborne previously. 
what else I had seen him in. So I looked him up. Michael Wincott. First of all, his IMDb picture is a very handsome older man. Yeah, it's his like, character poster a, from if nope. he If he was a four from this movie, then he's like an eight now. Hmm. Like he, he, he Pierce Brosnan'd it. He got better with age. What I know him from otherwise is Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. He's a warden of Chateau d'If in Count of Monte Cristo. And I almost couldn't peg him because of this fisheye lens thing that they do. It alters his look so much that I had to be told that it was the same person from Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, I think the first thing that I saw Michael Wincott in besides this movie was probably another film that I saw on the weekend afternoon wasteland of regular broadcast television. But he played the bad guy in The Crow. Oh, I've never seen The Crow. Yeah, a character called Top Dollar. He's oh. like the guy that's in charge of all the bad guys in the city. <gasps> Not that I would necessarily say, oh, look, it's Guy Gisborne, a.k.a. the bad guy from The Crow. But you know <laughs> what I mean. He's been very busy, and he's he is still very faces. busy. Yeah. Miami Vice. Oh, he's been working since the 70s. All right. Yeah. So what about Marion in this movie? Because the last time we saw Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio... She was in The Abyss. Yes, which I love that movie. I am a fan of Marion. In this particular viewing, I was a huge fan of her ability to scream mm -hmm. and still talk. Yeah. Like the way she screams Robin at the end is just, oh, it's so good. Yeah. It's so good. And there's so much emotion behind it. Like, I'm really happy you're alive, but I need you to come rescue me right now. Yeah, her screaming is just so good. Yeah. I also really like that she takes care of herself. Yeah, she learns how to fight enough that she can attack Robin while he's unarmed for a little while. <laughs> and a lot of the taking care of herself is by talk. Necessity. Is that she is, you know, playing her cards right. Mm. And for a while, until Robin gets involved, that works. And then Robin gets involved and it doesn't work anymore. And it's not like she doesn't make any mistakes. I mean, she trusts the priest. So that's kind of the source of her problems. An unfortunate mistake that she makes. Yeah. In my memory, Sarah died. And I'm really glad that she didn't. Yeah. I really am glad too. I mean, too. we don't get to see... No, was she at the wedding? She is... I don't remember seeing her specifically. She's at the scene where they're bringing in all of the captives. Yes. And I'm pretty sure she's in that wedding scene, but I wasn't looking for her at the right, time. Right, right. I didn't uh, notice her, but I wish I had. I, I want that reassurance that she's okay. Yeah. Sarah, oh, she gets so disrespected the first time that she's on screen. Oh, Robin, a little asshole. Yeah. And I just... <laughs> like, he is clearly lying that the years have been kind to her. I really don't like that. Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio and Imogen Bain, who played Sarah... They are only a year apart. Yeah. They are pretty much the same age. Right. Now, Lady Marion does say later on in the movie, she calls her my lady-in-waiting. Yeah. She's not a nursemaid. She's not there to take care of Marion. She's there as a companion and mm -hmm. a servant to Marion. So, you know, it's okay that they are the same age. She's not in charge of Marion in any way. Yeah, because I was thinking about the animated version because the nurse hen 
in that movie always mm. struck me as more of a matronly character. Yeah, absolutely. It was always very clear to me that she was the nurse that brought up Marion. Yeah. And she stayed with her probably until she was going to get married. And her job transitions from raising her, being a mother figure to her, then transitions to protecting her virtue, hmm. being a chaperone, making sure that she makes it to marriage. <laughs> and then her job is done. All right. Switching gears away yeah. from all the characters and general movie talk. This movie had a budget of $48 million. Its total box office take, $390.5 million, which is not bad. Nope, not bad at all. I'm glad that it made a profit because I had a crap ton of fun watching this movie. Mm -hmm. It holds up, not perfectly, but the things that are bad in this movie are there to be bad. Yeah, It's not like the characters are making light of it. Rape is bad. Discrimination against people for this color of their skin or their religion is bad. Those things are still bad, so it holds up. Yeah. This film is the second highest grossing film of 1991, immediately behind Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Ooh, yeah. That's a good movie. Yeah, I don't think they would have had any chance to beat T2, because T2 is an amazing movie. Yes. For accolades, this movie won... The BMI Film and TV Awards Film Music Award and Most Performed Song for a Film. It also won the British Academy Film Awards Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Alan Rickman. Evening Standard British Film Awards Best Actor to Alan Rickman. And then on the opposite end of that, the Golden Raspberry Awards gave Worst Actor to Kevin Costner for this role. Interestingly enough, Christian Slater was also nominated for a Worst Supporting Actor in that same Golden Raspberry Awards for that year. Okay, well, let's talk <laughs> about that for a second. I know this movie gets a lot of guff for the accent work. Yeah. Yeah, or the lack thereof. Say, Kevin Costner's refusal to do an accent of any kind. I am okay with that. I would rather he refuse to do an accent and just have this anachronistic American accent then try and do a bad British accent. Absolutely. And he's not the only one who didn't put on an accent. Will Scarlet, Christian Slater, didn't either. Mm -hmm. Lady Marion, I don't think she did either. It was not emphasized. No. Nope. I think Kevin Costner just has a very distinctive voice. And I don't know what it is about his voice, but it's very clear. It's always like the center of focus when he speaks. So him doing an American accent, it just stands out a lot. Yeah. Roger Ebert praised the performances of Morgan Freeman and Alan Rickman, but ultimately decried the film as a whole, giving it two stars and stating Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is a murky, unfocused, violent, and depressing version of the classic story. The most depressing thing about the movie is that children will attend it expecting to have a good time. <laughs> uh, as a child who saw this movie and had a good time, well, what's wrong with me having a good time with this movie. <laughs> I had a good time with it too. I definitely agree with the accolades for the performances of Morgan Freeman and Alan Rickman, especially Alan Rickman. This was such an amazing performance of his, especially the extended version, extended, the actual real version that I just saw. Mm -hmm. Vincent Canby from the New York Times wrote that this movie is a mess a big, long, joyless reconstruction of the Robin Hood legend that comes out firmly for civil rights, feminism, religious freedom, and economic opportunity for all. 
And he says that like it's a bad thing. Yeah, he uh. does. The Los Angeles Times also found the movie unsatisfactory, criticizing Costner for not attempting an English accent, mocking Robin's afternoon walk from the White Cliffs of Nottingham via Adrian's Wall, which is actually <laughs> 560 miles. Yeah, that's a good point. That's that's a good point. And honestly, if we were reviewing this movie one minute at a time, oh, we would have a whole episode talking about that. Oh, yeah. But we're not. I don't care. Like, there are no other rock walls in England? Come on. I live in New England. They're everywhere. Yeah, this movie has something against rock walls. Oh. A lot of them get smashed. Yes. In focus, weirdly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to what we liked and disliked about this movie. I preferred how we did it last time, where we started with the bad stuff and ended on the good stuff. So uh, Yeah, let's end on a high note. Let's start with things that we didn't like. I didn't like that this movie was two and a half hours long. I probably would have preferred just watching the two-hour TV cut <laughs> and snipping out all of the little behind-the-scenes stuff for the Sheriff of Nottingham dealing with his witch of a mother. I like watching these movies. I have an enjoyable time when I watch this movie, but it's... A very long film. It is really long. I'm not thirsty for content, milking it two minutes at a time. So I don't <laughs> need a Costner movie that's more than two hours long. It does push it into like epic realm, where I'm not sure that the subject matter and the handling of the subject matter warrants being an epic. I understand that there is more to this story than Waterworld. And that pushing this movie out to two and a half hours makes more sense than having a three-hour cut of Waterworld. There's more plot to have here. There's more to do. But let's just keep it moving. Keep it tight. Trim out the fat. Right. <laughs> if I start a movie at 645, I want to be done at 845, not 930. Yeah. There was so much going on in this movie. So many plot lines. And I think one of the critics called it an unfocused mess. I'm not sure I would go as far as saying it was unfocused, but it had a lot going on. And if we had to choose, one Kevin Costner movie can be super long, Waterworld or Robin Hood. I would pick Robin Hood. There's plot to fill it. Whereas yeah. Waterworld, not so much. That movie can be simplified and brought down to below two hours. But I think Robin Hood mm, deserves or can make an argument for two and a half hours. That being said, I agree. It was a long movie. I did not feel the length of the movie during the movie, but I do feel the length of it now. I feel like I should get 45 minutes back. <laughs> it is later in the night than I want it to be because mm -hmm. that movie was so long. All right. What was something you didn't like about this movie? I don't like the act of breaking skin. In the first third of the movie, when Robin slashes his hand open to swear on his blood that he's going to avenge his father, mm, I got squeamish about that. Little teeny tiny thing. And they didn't show it. And anything. they didn't show it, but they, you could hear it. You could hear it. That was really, mm, no, mm, not okay with me. And then when the sheriff stabs Guy of Gisborne through the stomach, that also was like, no, I don't like that. That's really all I can think of. And both of those were like, Plot points. Yeah. So they were important. It wasn't gratuitous. It was fine. Historically, I have complained about how women are treated. I don't really have that complaint in this movie. The sheriff of Nottingham did his darndest to treat 
Lady Marion as a plot device and to rape her and to force her into marriage. He tried to fit her into that trope that I hate so much. And she just wouldn't have it. Mm -hmm. She just noped all over the place. She refused to be a damsel. Yes. And she did cry out for help. But while she was waiting to be rescued, she wasn't just standing there waiting. She was resisting as much as she physically could. And even during the fight for her freedom and for her virtue, she helped. She kicked a table. Oh, she poured the wax on the sheriff's chest? Oh, yeah. I never noticed that before. She grabbed the candle, picked it up, and stabbed him with the end of the candle. So not only did he get the flame, but he got all of that hot wax that had pooled there. Yeah. And that, was that good. wax stays on him for yeah. the entire rest of the fight. So I really like how she handled herself as a character. She exerted her own agency. She took care of herself. But she was not you know, 100% capable of doing that. She still needed help, and that's okay. Hmm. It's okay if you can't save yourself. But she tried yeah. so hard. So I can't really complain about how women are treated in this film because I thought they did pretty good. All right. I'm going to jump into then my favorite part. All right, real quick. Yeah. Is your favorite thing Brian Adams' rendition of everything I do, I do it for you? No. Okay, just check. Okay, because it's yours? Okay. <laughs> My favorite thing, well, I have many, but here's one of them, is the character arc of Friar Tuck. I've mentioned before that I came to this version of Robin Hood from the Disney version of Robin Hood, where Friar Tuck is his characteristic, large, jolly-esque guy. And we get that same thing in the introduction of Friar Tuck. He is drunk and singing loudly, which feels like a ploy, but I can't quite put my finger on what his deal is. <laughs> but it feels like he's faking it, but I can't. Yeah, mm, I'm not his, sure there. I think his ploy is that he's just an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> like, was he being obnoxious on purpose? I think, I think so. Yeah. Not that he necessarily wanted to be obnoxious, just he felt like singing. Yeah. So that's our alcoholic. intro to him. And he is very resistant to joining the outlaw group, amusingly so. He ends up joining them, but then we get a couple of scenes of his resistance to Azim. Very aggressive resistance to Azim. And we're like, oh no, are we going to hate Friar Tuck? Is Friar Tuck a bad person? And for a while he is, until, you know, another human being has to earn his humanity by saving a life, as you do. Mm -hmm. So Azim saves the life of Fanny and the baby, and then... Friar Tuck is like, I misjudged you. You're cool. And starts to bond with him mm -hmm. over alcohol. So we see some change in him. And then his very last scene is just my, mm, it's my favorite, except for the wedding scene. He goes to the priest's chambers. The priest that has been corrupted the whole time. Yeah, the bishop. The bishop, thank you. And sees the bishop packing up to abscond with a bunch of gold. And he's, he's just so sarcastic with him. It's so good. And he loads him up with bags of gold that are obviously too heavy. And you can see the look on the bishop's face start to change. Like, thinking, okay, he's not going to attack me. To, oh, no, he is attacking me with the bags of gold. Mm -hmm. You see his face change. And then, ooh, to top it all off, it's just chef's kiss. Friar Tuck grabs one small bag and says, this is 30 pieces of silver to pay your toll to something, something, something. And then pushes him out the window. Yeah. 
Use 30 pieces of silver so you can pay the devil on your way to hell. Yes! It's so good. I never noticed before the reference to the 30 pieces of silver referencing what um, Judas was paid to betray Christ. I thought that was a really nice little detail on the end of that scene. Yeah. So I really like his character arc as a whole. Okay. How about you? So even though Brian Adams parentheses everything i do and parentheses i do it for you won a grammy for this movie it also won an award from the mtv music video awards um it was not my absolute favorite part of this film my absolute favorite part of this film just told me off mic that it was i didn't say that i didn't say that (laughs) my absolute favorite part of this movie was the infiltration of nottingham castle on the day of the mass execution slash the sheriff's wedding the way that the members of robin's team did their individual infiltrations with fanny bringing all of the weapons in in a bundle and then helping little john get over the wall and hello my lover bull was there dressed as a celt yep and he got in and then robin covering himself in horse poop so that he can like sneak past that one guard with the bent nose thing like i really like how it was executed. It had big heist energy, and I love a good heist mm-hmm. in a movie. So I think that was my favorite action sequence of the whole film. Plus, you get the ridiculousness of Robin and Azim on the catapult flying over the wall of the inner keep. So <laughs> yes, you do. Just that entire action scene, loved it. I agree. It was really great. I would like to give honorary mention to Bull because he was introduced as a joke Mm -hmm. But he stuck around for the whole movie and played a significant role in their entire story of them as a people. He was there for all of the shenanigans. Mm -hmm. He was useful for all of the shenanigans. His subterfuge was fantastic when they pretended to get caught down the road. So good. He was a very enjoyable merry man. I also really like, I just have a lot of favorite things. I could talk all day about all the things that I liked about this movie. Coming from Disney's Robin Hood, it was established in that movie that a trademark of Robin Hood's was his ability to dress up and be out in public and be near the people who are trying to kill him. They don't know he's there because he's dressed up. Mm -hmm. And this movie extended that. There was two times where he dressed himself up in disguise, he went to church in the first one and just like hung out with Maid Marian. And then at the end, he just walked right in to the execution gathering, even though he was wanted very much so. So I like that continuation of Robin Hood is good at disguising himself. Mm. And uh, Brian Adams song is yeah. just amazing. Uh, <laughs> amazing. I really like that it was played as a theme for romantic moments between Robin and Marion because it is a very nice melody. And then it was the closing song. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. All right. Well, one final note before we wrap up for today. This made me smile. I was scrolling through the Wikipedia page and the version of the movie that we watched is a special extended (gasps) version that was released on a two disc special edition in 2003. (laughs) I feel validated. (laughs) So the thing that I didn't like about this movie is kind of on me for getting this copy. Oh, my Um, goodness. Yeah. It had 12 minutes. 
okay. of previously unreleased footage. So people listening to this are like not really going to know what we're talking about when we're talking about all that extra stuff we saw. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You should put out ahead of time, hey guys, we watched an extended version. If you want to see that version, look for one that's this length. I. I might put it in the description for this episode. I'm not okay. going to alert listeners ahead of the episode. Okay, okay. No. It's a completely different movie. Yeah. And those 12 minutes are specifically dedicated to the conspirator plot and the relationship between the sheriff and Mortiana. Uh-huh. Well, what a note to go out on. Yep. Well, listeners, we've had a great time with all of these movies so far. This hiatus with Deadcom and The Bodyguard, Easy Rider, Sliding Doors, and now Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, you know from previous seasons, perhaps, that we always include a children's movie. So next hiatus episode, we are returning to the water, the world of water, by (laughs) watching 2003's Finding Nemo. So keep an eye on the feed for that. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham, produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our website is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute, like us on Facebook by searching for madmaxminute, and support the podcast by visiting patreon.com/madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute. We'll see you next time. <laughs>